That was beautiful. Thank you, Lauren. Susie Edwards was a saint. I mean that in every sense of the word. She was a redeemed, saved child of the king. But she was also a saint in just her mannerisms, her demeanor, and her ministry. She gave all the high school seniors in my graduating class, and I guess for every graduating class, a laundry basket that we still use today at my home. And attached to the basket was a uh, laminated instructions for how to do laundry for us naive Williamson County uh, 18-year-olds who had never done laundry before. So important things like separate your colors from your lights and wash on cold your colors, stuff that I had no idea. So I thank you uh, for her legacy. When she worked at the TBC and we had our bulletins printed over there at Forest Hills, I would occasionally go over to the TBC to pick up our bulletins and she was so proud of me that I was in ministry and that I was a youth minister and she would beam and give me a big hug and say, I'm so proud of you, Nathan. And now if she could see me as the pastor at Woodmont, I know she would just be beaming and, and just so proud of uh, what the Lord has done in my life. So I'm, I'm so grateful for those saints who work with youth and who uh, work with children and preschoolers. Thank you uh, for your ministry. I'm really grateful for this opportunity to not only shepherd Woodmont Baptist Church, but also to walk through the gospel of John, every verse, verse by verse, for the entire year of 2019, or at least through November. It's been a wonderful opportunity for me to learn and dive deep into this incredible gospel, to encounter the person of Jesus Christ within its pages. And I pray that this has been a blessing for you all as well. So today we're going to finish chapter 4. We've, we've seen the encounter between Jesus and Nicodemus, the Jewish official. We've seen the encounter between Jesus and the Samaritan woman. And now we're going to see today an encounter between Jesus and a desperate man who is a, a, a Roman official. So let's stand in honor of God's word as I read our text for today from the Gospel of John, starting in chapter 4, verse 43. Hear the word of the Lord. After the two days, Jesus departed for Galilee, for Jesus himself had testified that a prophet had no honor in his own hometown. So when he came to Galilee, the Galileans welcomed him, having seen all that he had done in Jerusalem at the feast, for they too had gone to the feast. So he came again to Cana in Galilee, where he had made the water wine. And at Capernaum, there was an official whose son was ill. When this man heard that Jesus had come from Judea to Galilee, he went to him and asked him to come down and heal his son, for he was at the point of death. So Jesus said to him, unless you see signs and wonders, you will not believe. The official said to him, sir, come down before my child dies. Jesus said to him, go. Your son will live. The man believed the word that Jesus spoke to him and went on his way. And as he was going down, his servants met him and told him that his son was recovering. So he asked them about the hour when he began to get better. And they said to him, yesterday, at the seventh hour, the fever left him. The father knew that was the hour when Jesus had said to him, your son will live. And he himself believed in all his household. This was now the second sign that Jesus did when he had come from Judea to Galilee. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. You may have a seat. You know, desperate times call for what? 
desperate measures, right? When you have a two-year-old, there are several instances where you will have desperate times and will have to take desperate measures. One Sunday after service, Isaiah, our two-year-old, ran in here and he was wearing like sweatpants and a t-shirt, something that was not what Morgan had dressed him in, obviously, before service that day. And I kind of looked puzzlingly at my wife and before I could say anything, she said, he fell in the toilet. I said, okay, all right, say no more. Okay, all right, that just happens. Desperate times call for desperate measures. As a young, headstrong college student with my, my laundry basket from Susie Edwards, uh, I, I found myself in several desperate situations, uh, obviously. Uh, one of them was we had gone to my friend's lake house on Tim's Ford Lake near Tullahoma. Fran Free, who was a member of this church, it was actually her lake house. It was her granddaughter's, uh, uh, who I was friends with. And they had this big pontoon boat, and, and me and a buddy decided we would get on the pontoon boat and bring as many people on it as we could. And we couldn't get it started, though. I think it was out of gas or something. So I had the genius idea of tying some ski ropes together and just locking ourselves to the dock and drifting out into the lake as we could. So we just went out into the lake and had a great old time. The, the electric system worked, so we had the stereo going on the pontoon boat and thought it was a great idea until my buddies started pulling us back in that were on the dock. And they were pulling the ropes and I watched in terror as the rope went slack as it broke and fell into the water. And we kind of laughed nervously for a little bit, but we noticed we were increasingly drifting further and further away from the dock and closer to this dam where the water was churning. And we started to panic. So my friend Adam and I said, desperate times, call for desperate measures. And we jumped in the water. This was about this time of year. It was Easter break and the water was freezing to this day. I've never been that cold in my life. And we swam and we pushed and we pulled until we got the boat back to shore. We didn't make it to the dock. We just got it to the shore and had to take a break and walked it over to the dock. Desperate times call for desperate measures. The official in this story is a desperate man. He's in a, a crisis. And you'll see that he comes to, to Christ with a crisis faith. But he leaves, as we'll see, with a confident faith. His son, his beloved, precious offspring is sick unto the point of death. And I know we have several church members who can relate to specifically this kind of crisis. Many of you have walked the, the journey of having a child who's experienced some kind of serious illness. Some of you have even experienced the death of a child. And I'm I can't imagine the grief and the pain that you've experienced. I pray that you continue to find hope and healing in the ancient words that our God is our refuge and the strength and the present help in times of trouble. As, as parents, you know, we would do anything for a sick child, wouldn't we? We would trade places if we could in an instant. We would go to drastic, desperate measures if it would help our child. The official in this story is probably a, a Roman officer, a Gentile, outside of the covenant people of the Jews. And here he comes to Jesus, this young, self-taught Jewish rabbi, because he's desperate. It's a last gasp measure. As an officer in, in the Roman army, he's powerful. He's influential, he's wealthy, he can snap his fingers and accomplish great things, but he could not solve this problem. I'm sure he had 
gathered all the, the best doctors and medicinal experts and had procured the best care that money could buy, but none of it worked. His son was not getting any better and was headed towards death. So he finally comes to Jesus. He's heard the rumors about this prophet who's turned water into wine and who teaches with authority as one who comes from heaven himself. See, the official shows up in Cana with this crisis. And we're going to see how his faith is transformed. The passage starts out with Jesus going back home to Galilee. He'd been in Judea in the south for the feast of Passover, traveled through Samaria where he met the woman at the well, and now is back up north in Galilee. And he had quoted this proverb before that a prophet has no honor in his own hometown. It was certainly true. The very people that Jesus grew up with, his family, his, his childhood friends, his neighbors in Galilee rejected him as the Messiah. And we saw that in the prologue, even in John chapter 1, and in verse 10 and in verse 11. Jesus was in the world, and the world was made through him, yet the world did not know him. He came to his own. His own people did not receive him. The prophets told us that the Messiah would be rejected and despised, even by his own people. But this time it looks different. Look at verse 45. When he came to Galilee, the Galileans welcomed him. Great. They, they welcomed him. The tide has turned. Galilee is embracing Jesus now. Well, keep reading. They welcomed him having seen all that he had done in Jerusalem at the feast, for they too had gone to the feast. Oh, so this guy from Galilee goes down to Jerusalem and causes some waves, shakes some things up, drives people out of the temple courtyards. All the disciples of John the Baptist out in the wilderness start to follow this guy. He, he gains a little reputation, a little notoriety, and all of a sudden he's a hometown hero. The Galileans were hearing about how all this drama surrounding Jesus, and now he's the hottest ticket in town. He's a, a hometown celebrity. So they're welcoming him not as the Messiah, but on a shallow, superficial level. Contrast that with how the Samaritans welcomed him. Remember the Samaritans, he was just there you know, in, for two days in Samaria, and they came flocking to him saying, we have seen the Messiah, the Savior of the world. They acknowledged his identity as the Savior of the world. So when Jesus arrives in Cana, the rumors start to spread, and the official in Capernaum, about 20 miles away, hears that Jesus is back in Galilee, and he comes desperate. He doesn't send a servant. He comes in person, face to face. This is too important. <coughs> Excuse me. Verse 47 says, when this man heard that Jesus had come from Judea to Galilee, he went to him and asked him to come down and heal his son, for he was at the point of death. That word for asked in there is really more like begged, and it implies that he kept begging over and over again. This powerful and important official is on his knees begging a carpenter's son to come and heal his child, to perform a miracle. It's, it's like he's constantly following Jesus around, begging, please, 
please, Jesus, Lord, sir, master, please come down to Capernaum and and perform a, a great work. Heal my son. He's desperately pleading for his son's life. And and Jesus responds to him, and it seems kind of cold, right? Verse 48, Jesus says to him, unless you see signs and wonders, you will not believe. You know, I've said this for years, but I'm going to publish a southern version of the Bible because we just, in our grammatically correct English Bibles, we, we miss a very important thing that's happening in the text because it says, you, unless you see signs and wonders, what we don't see is that the text really says, unless y'all see signs and wonders. Jesus is not just replying to the official, he's replying to the skeptical, jaded Galileans as well, all around him. Unless y'all see signs and wonders, y'all will never believe. It's a matter of y'all, I think in Jersey they say use, right, Ron? Something? Yeah, there you go. Ron still says use. I, I giggle every time. Use. You all see signs and wonders. This request from the official prompts the Galileans to say, okay, miracle man, do your thing. Let's see some show. Let's see a little magic now. Let's see some signs and wonders. Even the official wants Jesus to come physically to Capernaum so he can work his magic on his son there. All these people were so focused on what Jesus could do that they missed the point of who Jesus is. His identity as the savior of the world. The Galileans were obsessed with signs and wonders which are simply the byproducts of who Jesus is. They are just the result of him being the sovereign savior of the world. They're missing the glory of the one from whom these things spring forth. And Jesus' response is really like, ah, I wish you guys would focus less on the signs and the wonders and more on me. I wish you would stop thinking about the signs and the wonders and just focus your heart's affection and your mind's attention on me. He wanted them to move beyond the oohs and ahs of miracles and to trust in him fully as the Savior and to believe in his word. We need to hear that word today too, I think. How many of us are following Jesus simply for what he can do for us? If we only follow Jesus because we get a get out of hell free card or because Jesus is my co-pilot while I'm driving and he keeps me safe or something, then we're not really Christians at all. To be a Christian disciple is to follow Christ with all that we are because we're convinced that he is the ultimate, glorious, most excellent, most perfect, most wonderful, gracious, loving thing in all the universe. That he's worth giving up everything to follow him as we die to ourselves and take up our cross daily in order to follow him as a disciple. So the official doesn't argue with Jesus. He doesn't deny that he's interested in what Jesus can do. Look at verse 49. The official says to Jesus, Sir, come down before my child dies. Again, you hear the 
desperation in his voice. He won't be turned away. His last hope, his only hope, is Jesus the Christ. And the same is true for us, whether we realize it or not. We're all desperately in need of a Savior outside of ourselves. When Charles Spurgeon, the great British Baptist preacher, preached this very text from John 4, he compared it to the, the Puritan pastor, John Bunyan, the guy that wrote Pilgrim's Progress. He once said, I was driven to such straits that I must of necessity go to Jesus. And if he had met me with a drawn sword in his hand, I would have sooner thrown myself upon the edge of his sword than have gone away from him. For I knew him to be my last hope. But we can trust that when we come to Jesus, he doesn't meet us with a drawn sword. Because the character, the, the nature of who Jesus Christ is, is of supreme compassion and tenderness. Look at his response in verse 50. Go. Your son will live. He does a long-distance miracle. He performs a miracle 20 miles away. He heals the dying boy just by speaking the words, your son will live. Jesus is sovereign. He changes reality by his word. When he speaks something, it is true by the virtue of the fact that he spoke it. He's in charge of everything, including sickness, disease, germs, microbes in our bodies. He controls them all, and he can heal in any way that he chooses to heal. And notice that Jesus didn't give the official a sign. He just gave him his word. The official would have to accept the miracle by grace through faith, just like we all do. Christianity must be embraced by grace, the unmerited favor of God expressed in the cross of Jesus Christ that we could never have earned through faith, trusting that God can do what he says he can do. How did the official respond to the word of Christ? Look at the rest of verse 50. The man believed the word that Jesus spoke to him and went on his way. He had faith that the gracious gift of Jesus was effective for his son's complete restoration. He trusted that Jesus spoke the truth. You know, often our society says seeing is believing. But for Christians, we say believing is seeing. The official had the eyes of his heart opened in this instant to behold the glory of Jesus the sovereign savior of the world and of his son. You know, one of the greatest chapters in the Bible about faith is Hebrews 11. It goes through this list of all these great characters in the Old Testament who were heroes of faith. Noah, Abraham, Moses. It's called the Hall of Faith sometimes. And I love the way the chapter introduces the idea of faith in verse 1. It gives us a definition of what faith is. It says, now faith is the assurance of things hoped for, the conviction of things not seen. I love how the New Living Translation translates it. Faith shows the reality of what we hope for. Faith is the evidence of things we cannot see. Believing is seeing. 
the official for the first time in his life had put his trust, his faith in something bigger than himself, something outside of his own capacity to make things right on his own. His heart believes in Jesus Christ and his life would never be the same because of it. Look at the last few verses starting in 51. As he was going down back to Capernaum, his servants met him and told him that his son was recovering. So he asked them the hour when he began to get better, and they said to him, yesterday at the seventh hour, the fever left him. The father knew that was the hour when Jesus had said to him, your son will live. And he himself believed in all his household. I love this scene. It's a happy ending. The officials headed back to Capernaum. His servants are riding down to Cana to meet him on the road to tell him that his son has been healed. And I think maybe he's looking for confirmation of his newfound faith. He's kind of testing it out, and he's asked them, so what time did this healing occur? And they say, I don't know, it was yesterday, about 1 p.m. And he knew that was the exact moment when Jesus the Messiah had said, your son will live. And I, I think he just smiled. He laughed. He, he tested his faith, and it proved to not let him down. And then I think he evangelized his servants. He said, guys, let me tell you how this happened. Let me tell you who I met who did this thing. It's Jesus the Messiah who's done this miracle. And when it says in verse 53 that his, his whole household believed along with him, that includes these servants who lived and worked in his home. Imagine the difference between that first ride down to Cana and that, that desperate ride from Capernaum to Cana and the joyful ride back. Those 20 miles were very different. On the way down, he was worried sick. He probably hadn't slept or, or eaten. I'm sure his eyes were bloodshot and bleary, and the last several days of his son's illness had taken a toll on him. But now, on the way home, he's laughing. He's marveling. He's worshiping, giving thanks. The responsive reading that we just read, giving thanks to God, saying to God be the glory. The difference was faith. Now, on the way back, he had the assurance of things hoped for. He possessed the conviction of things not seen. And that meant he could laugh and give thanks to God. Living by faith it isn't just so you can go to heaven. Living by faith isn't about following the rules or, or being good. That's not what living by faith is about. L living by faith is the life of flourishing. It's the way to flourish. The life of faith is the life of hope and trust in the reality of God's greatness and goodness and faithfulness. It's trusting constantly in his sovereign ability to do all the things that we can't do. If you find yourself going through life like the official went down to Cana, worried, fearful, breathless, afraid, tired, you are invited into the life of faith today where you surrender all those things to Christ and flourish the way he intended for us to. Imagine the official riding up to his house in Capernaum, and his son runs down the driveway to meet him. 
His cheeks are full of color. He's got energy for the first time in weeks. And after hugging and laughing and crying together, imagine the joy that father felt as he led his healed son to the Lord in faith in Jesus. Then he explains who Jesus is to his wife and the rest of the servants, and maybe he baptizes them all. It's an explosion of faith among a Gentile household in Capernaum. Thanks be to God. We're told in verse 54, this was the second sign. The first one was when Jesus turned the water into wine in Cana in chapter 2. This is the second sign that Jesus did when he'd come from Judea back up to Galilee. The, the first half of the Gospel of John, chapters 2 through 12, really focus on these seven signs that Jesus does, and each one reveals a little bit more of who Jesus is, his identity as the Messiah of the world. And the main point of these signs is to engender faith. Skip ahead to John 20. This is the purpose statement for John. This is what we're calling the whole series this year. Verse 30 says, Now Jesus did many other signs, not just seven, in the presence of the disciples, which are not written in this book. But these are written so that you may believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God, and that by believing, you may have life, abundant life in his name. Believing in Jesus, like the official did, brings life, it brings healing, it brings abundant life in the precious name of Jesus Christ. Faith in Christ leads to life both now and forever in eternity. Some of you may be struggling with your faith right now. Maybe you don't really have much of a prayer life. Maybe you haven't prayed in a long time. Maybe you feel like God is distant from you. Maybe you don't experience the joy of coming into God's house and worshiping with God's people and the saints. I want to give you two suggestions of how you can cultivate your faith and live the abundant life that God has for us. First, hear the word of God. The official hears the word of Christ. Romans 10, 17 says, so faith comes through hearing, and hearing through the word of Christ. You can encounter the word of Christ if you own a Bible, and if you don't, I have plenty in my office I'd love to give you. Come see me after the service. Are you immersing yourself in God's word? Find a reading plan that works for you. We have several listed on our website. Go to woodmontbaptist.com and find a reading plan that works for you. Start encountering Christ through his word and hear what he has to say to you. I promise you, faith grows in the fertile soil of God's word. The second way to cultivate your faith is to exercise it. It's like you don't use it, you lose it, right? It's amazing how fast you can lose your fitness. I, I got roped into doing the, the, the marathon here in April, uh, back in 2015, I believe, and I did 300 miles of training. I was going to do it right. You know, I was going to break four hours. That was my goal. And I actually, 10 days before the race, was playing volleyball with students, hazards of the job, right? And I, I rolled my ankle, and I ended up with this huge knot on my Achilles tendon, and the, the doctor said, you can't run for 
you know, 10 days just rest before the race. Maybe you could do the race uh, if you just rest. So I, I didn't train at all the last 10 days. And the knot went away, which was great, through some therapy. But when I got out there to run the marathon, I, my endurance had dropped so much. All that, that endurance I'd built up was, was gone because 10 days of not training. Faith is similar to that. You have to exercise your faith like a muscle. Walk by faith each and every day. Step out in faith, trusting that God will provide and you will be amazed at how he provides over and over. I love the hymn, Tis So Sweet to Trust in Jesus. How I trust him, how I proved him over and over. And each time we prove him, our faith grows stronger. Let's live by faith as we leave here today. As Christians, we walk by faith and not by sight. It's the only way to live, by faith and not by sight. Let's pray. God, thank you for your word that shows us how to cultivate our faith. Thank you for these signs that we see in scripture that point us to Jesus Christ, to increase our faith in him. He did these things so that we may believe so that we may have faith in him. God, we all have crises in our life. We have desperate times and we resort to desperate measures. I pray that like the official, we would bring all of our cares to the one who cares for us, that we would cast our cares on him and find life through faith, that we would believe, that we would trust more and more that you would grow our faith, that you would help our unbelief. We pray that you would cultivate our faith in the soil of your word as we immerse ourselves in scripture. I pray that you would give us opportunities to exercise our faith, to step out when it may be scary, trusting you, that you will provide for us, that you are faithful, that your arms are everlasting, and we can lean on them forever. God, I pray that you would grow our hearts to be bigger for you, that they would beat for you in everything that we do. We love you. We pray this in the precious name of Jesus Christ, our Lord. Amen. We're going to sing a hymn of invitation. I've decided to follow Jesus as a disciple. This whole year we're talking about following Christ with all that we are, trusting in him, leaving everything else behind in order to follow Christ as a disciple. If you need to make a decision today, maybe you've never been baptized, but you believe in Jesus and you're ready to make that public profession of faith and follow Jesus' example in the waters of baptism, I'd love to talk to you about that. Maybe you know it's time for you to join Woodmont Baptist Church and what the Lord's doing here, and you want to be a part of this family of faith. We're not a perfect family of faith. We're full of imperfect people just like you. <laughs> there are hypocrites here. I'm one of them. So are you. We welcome you to join us and try to be the family of faith that God has provided us to be as we move forward into God's plan for Woodmont Baptist Church in our future. I'm excited about what the Lord's doing in our church and about where we're headed, and I hope you'll join us on that journey. Maybe you just want to come pray with somebody or pray at the altar. Maybe you, you're in a desperate situation and, and you need to come to Christ and lay it all before him. Maybe you just want to pray for your your marriage, your healing, your physical healing, emotional healing. Maybe you have a friend who's going through a crisis and you want to come intercede on their behalf. Trey, if you'll come stand up here. Jan, Brad, if you'll come stand up here. If you want to pray with somebody, I'll be here. Or just kneel at the altar. It'll be open as well. 
Let's stand and sing with conviction. I have decided to follow Jesus. No turning back. Let's sing.